Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 5 is where we left off last week, and we find ourselves in verse 3 of Romans 5, and we're going to stare at a couple verses this morning and consider what I think is just a really important truth for us to think about as a church and, and where we are this morning is, is a place that I hope that God would use to help prepare us for, for life in a broken world. And so as you're finding Romans 5, let me just mention that uh, thank you for your prayers for uh, Uganda. As I leave tomorrow, I'll fly out in the afternoon and uh, then we're going to do this pastor's conference on Thursday and Friday. And then I'll preach at King's Jesus Church next Sunday. And Robert will be preaching next Sunday here. And we're going to take a break out of Romans. And he's going to preach, I believe, out of Joshua and the story of Rahab. So you can read ahead for that. And then the following week we'll get back into Romans. Um, but do pray for, for Uganda. I think that um, there's a possibility um, that... Lord willing, when I retire from Crosspoint, that um, if the Lord would be kind, that maybe I could, and along with my wife Jennifer, if she's willing, we could spend like three to six months a year in Uganda, just sort of pouring into these people there. And so um, I'm kind of going to set up my retirement and job sort of. Um, and so we're working this out publicly. Is that okay with you, babe? Yeah. <laughs> But I just love these people there. Um, I, I not only go to share, I go to be encouraged and to learn from these brothers there. And so do pray for us, for me as I go. And I'm going to meet some guys from Birmingham, a pastor there that's going to help to teach with me. And so really, really, really encouraged. Um, let me read Romans 5, verses 3 through, well, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. We're going to settle down in particular on verses 3 and 4. And uh, we'll pray and then we'll work back through this, this text. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, verse 3, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this text. Lord, as we, as we open your word and lay it before our eyes. I pray that you'd give us your grace. Lord, there's so many different situations represented by each life in this room that it would be impossible to, to specifically make application, humanly speaking, to where each of us are. But by your Holy Spirit, you can do that. And I pray that you would, that you would take this text and you would take my words and that you would use them to produce your purpose and your will in the life of each person here. Those that are trusting in Christ, may you prepare us to suffer well for the glory of God. May you give us a biblical theology of suffering that is more, more centered on the scriptures. May we understand it more biblically. And for those that are not trusting in Christ, Lord, I, I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would sovereignly give the gift of faith, that you'd make their dead hearts alive, and that you would open them up to the beauty, give them the gift of faith so that they can trust in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd do this all for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Generally, my, my habit every Monday um, is to take our member directory at Crosspoint, and there are some 600 names or so in this directory, 
and I will at some point generally on a Monday try and look at every face and look at every name that's in this directory and, and, and pray for, for all of you that are members of Crosspoint to, to some measure. I do this really selfishly because usually Mondays I feel terrible. I feel like my preaching is often very mediocre, and so this is a kind of way for me to get my heart off of myself because I'm such a self-absorbed jerk. And so I'm actually being selfish in the way I pray for you. It just helps me to not think about myself for half of a second. And then I just want to consider this how the people that God has given me to serve and and I noted this week as I was doing this and thinking about this text, specifically verses 3 and 4 that we're going to zero in on about how we are to rejoice in our sufferings. I started to consider how many people in cross points are either recently coming out of a time of suffering or are in a time of suffering. And so I thought, I'll just make a check mark by every little picture of every person that has recently gone through some measure of suffering, I know that it's different degrees for everybody, or is currently in it. And it's about two-thirds of you that recently have suffered significantly to some degree relationally or in some way or are, are in some situation that is difficult. And that leaves about a third of you. And I, then I considered for those third that didn't have a check by their name, I know that it's coming, right? It's coming. So it's, it's all of us. And I, I pray that God would use this text today to, to equip us. And this is a challenge for us. It's, it's not as much of a challenge to the brothers that I'll be speaking to on Thursday and Friday of this week because their, their life is more filled with suffering just because they're in a different part of the world. Just getting up and daily existence and, and medicine and nutrition and shelter are, are, are daily struggles for some of these brothers. And so for us in our context, this, there's a kind of gap between what we see in the Bible and our everyday experience. But know this, friends, that no matter where we are on this planet, we live in a broken world and trouble is coming. And God intends to strengthen and to fortify his people in it because he has purposes for us in that suffering. And so let's, let's zero in on, on verses 3 and 4 in particular. And then I want us to reflect on a few truths about suffering and the Christian. Look, look at verse 3 again. Paul says, not only that. So what, what is Paul referring to in not only that? I think he's referring clearly to what he said just directly above in verse 2 that we ended on last week, where he says that we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Do you remember how we considered how our glorification, if you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Christ, is so certain, the final state of God's people is so certain that later on in Romans, in Romans chapter 8, Paul will speak about our glorification in past tense. That means up to this point that Paul has been arguing that all people, Jew and Gentile, every single person in the world, religious and non-religious, is born with a sin nature because we are all children of our father, Adam. And we're going to get into that later on in chapter 5, where we are all born guilty and God in his kindness has put his son Jesus forward as a sacrifice to bear the wrath of God that barrels down on the head of every human that is born in sin, which is all of us. And Jesus is put forward as a sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God. He takes that punishment on the cross for his people, rises in victory over it, and now sovereignly gives faith to all those that the Father has given him. And by that faith, which is a free gift of God, we then, as he gives it to us by grace, we then put our hope in Jesus, and we are justified because of what Jesus has done, not because what we have done. And that is what is called justification by faith. And that justification by faith 
guarantees that a person will grow in Christ's likeness through their life, which is sanctification, and that guarantees that they will finally make it home, and that's glorification. And what Paul has said in verses 1 and 2 is that we, as believers in Jesus, need not be nervous or anxious about our future, but we can hope in the certainty of the glory of God in our lives. And then in verse 3, he says... But not only that, and right now we'd expect to be still soaring. We'd be, yeah, give me some more, Paul. Give me some more encouraging stuff. Not only that, cold water thrown against the face. We can rejoice in our sufferings. You see, Paul has us in the lofty heights of glorification in verse 2, and he pulls us back down into the reality of a broken world at the beginning of verse 3. And he says, but not only that, we rejoice. This word rejoices, it's so interesting. Some versions maybe that you have in front of you might use the word glory. We glory in our sufferings. We exult in our sufferings. A, a definition of of all of the various English words that we've, we've, we've used to describe this Greek word, uh, uh, maybe a thorough definition of the original word that is used in the language that Paul wrote this in in Greek is, is this, is to express an unusually high degree of confidence in something or someone that is exceptionally noteworthy. And what's interesting is, is this word rejoice or glory or exult, depending on what version you may be looking at, is the same word that Paul uses in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians where he says that those who boast should only boast in the Lord. And so just let's orient ourselves here to Paul's frame of mind that he's saying God is so good that he's going to glorify the Christian. And then he, in verse 3, what takes what seems to be an left turn and says, and we can exult, we can boast in our sufferings. And then notice that he says, in our sufferings. That it's in, not in spite of, because we know God is good, although that's true, but we can actually rejoice in our sufferings. Now, what, is, what does sufferings mean? Well, I think that this word suffering, I think, has broad application in the Christian life. It, it's anything that presses on us or squeezes us. It's things that are external that, because we live in a broken world, happen to us. I think it's things that arise from within us because we still have to deal with the residue of our former sin nature, that sanctification. I think this has broad application. It's not just physical, it's emotional. But anything that is out of joint in the life of a Christian as they still endure this broken world, I think is encompassed in this word suffering. And so Paul is telling us that we can rejoice in our sufferings. Why? And here he's going to get to the purposes and the fruit of it, knowing that our suffering produces something in us. And he gives us a kind of little chain here uh, of, of fruit that God brings in the life of a Christian as a result of suffering. He, he shows us how suffering actually serves God's people. The first thing, he, the thing that he mentions there is that it produces in us endurance, long-suffering, Patience, strength, the ability to bear up under difficult circumstances. It gives us kind of like spiritual wind, you know? Um, I, when I was in the army years ago, I used to run a lot in a mandatory sort of way. <laughs> and there was a time when my wind was pretty good, like, you know, my cardiovascular fitness. And... There's just this thing, this sort of this delusion about getting old is you just sort of think that you can do what you did 20 years ago, you know? And every now and again, I'll just go run and I'll, I'll just realize how little endurance I actually have. And how your mind starts playing tricks with you when you think, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get in good cardiovascular shape. And you're, 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 you're literally 90 seconds in and you're already making excuses, right? Is anybody... Does anybody, does anybody else have that problem as well? Or am I just the only like, really pathetic person here? We, we all do that. And what Paul is saying is that suffering produces a kind of 
a kind of anchor, an endurance, an ability to keep running even though we have a sort of shortness of breath spiritually. Does that make sense? And then what he says, what is, he goes on, he says that that endurance produces something. So knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance, verse 4, produces character. Now, don't think of character here in the sense of, like, moral fitness, also, although certainly that's part of the Christian life. What I think this word character is getting at is, is a kind of genuineness, an authenticity, that suffering, as it produces endurance in the life of a Christian, I think serves as a kind of witness inwardly to ourselves and to an onlooking world that we are actually trusting in the thing that we say we trust in. Does that make sense? It, 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 it lines up our words and our deeds more, in more harmony. And that produces in us character, which I think is a, a genuineness, an authenticity in the Christian life. And so as we're running that race and we are getting our spiritual wind up, we, we are encouraged because we see in ourselves a proof of genuineness that yes, I'm really trusting in Christ. Do you see how then suffering kind of serves the Christian? Even though it's maybe very difficult to go through in the moment, it actually can kind of strangely, strangely encourage you because you see that in that moment, you're actually still hoping in Christ. No better proof of this is when, when I sit down with somebody maybe that is going through a difficult situation. In fact, very recently, I was sitting down with a, a, a person in this church who has endured a very, very difficult time in their life. And as this person was getting up from this conversation, walking out of my office, this person almost just sort of, just sort of in a secondhand way, said, you know, but I thank God for this because in it all, God has really drawn close to me and I've drawn close to him and it's been a kind of strange encouragement for me. Even though months ago this person would have never wished to go through this thing. And God has used that thing in this person's life to produce a kind of assurance in this person that what they said they believed in times of comfort is actually true in their lives in times of distress. And then that character, then it serves as a kind of cascade here. Endurance gives us spiritual wind. It produces in us character. It's a genuineness. It's a proving. It's an authenticating. And then it circles back around to where we were at the end of verse 2. That produces in us more hope. You see that? All of that, as Paul has in verse 2, think about just the flow here of his argument. In verse 2, we are soaring on gospel clouds. He ends this saying, because of justification of faith, you have peace with God. You have access into this grace in which you stand. And now you can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then he yanks us from that down into reality. And he says, it's going to be tough, but you can rejoice in this. But what is going to happen as you are in this trial is that strangely, through it all, God is actually going to use it to serve to lift your head back up because as you get spiritual wind and endurance and your character is fashioned, you're more like Jesus. You're authenticating to yourself that you're actually trusting in, yourself, in him and not yourself. It lifts your head and you circle back around to hope. Do you see that? That is so encouraging. It's, it's like a, I thought about this. It's like a, a little teenage boy that has just started lifting weights. You know, he's been a scrawny little joker. And he's just started lifting weights. And he sees a little bit of progress. And you catch him flexing in the mirror. You know? Don't even act like every man in this room has done that. Don't even. Don't even. And when that little scrawny boy sees a little tiny mosquito bite bump on his bicep, you know, and it's, he sees a little bit of muscle forming, what does that do? It serves to propel him 
to keep going, right? And that's what verse 5 says. Hope does not put us to shame. It doesn't disappoint us. Uh, back in the 80s, uh, I, I think I was in high school during this time, um, <laughs> Geraldo, do you remember Geraldo Rivera did that big TV special where he was going to dig up Al Capone's vault in Chicago? Anybody remember that? It was, <laughs> and I mean, that had me mesmerized, right? Being of Italian heritage, it was sort of significant to me, Capone, all this kind of stuff. Like, yeah, let's, let's figure this thing out. And it was a whole TV special where my man Geraldo, who I just sort of strangely like, I don't know why, but he's just sort of endearing, and it's a day-long special. They dig up underneath his hotel in Chicago, and, and they find nothing. Zero, zilch, nada. It was disappointing, to say the least, right? But what, is, what does Paul say about all of this cascading fruit in the life of the Christian, this hope that we ultimately circle back around on does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And let me just hit the pause button and say there that the second half of verse 5 I think is so significant theologically in the Christian life that I think we're going to pick that up in a couple weeks when I get back from Uganda. So let's, let's stop now and just, just consider... The, the purposes of God in suffering in the life of the Christian. Before I do that, let me just give you just a sampling of passages. In fact, we could just read through passages in the New Testament and let it just bathe our soul in God's purposes. But, but just look at just a sampling of some passages in the New Testament that speak to the, to the purposes of God and suffering. I want you to see how biblical this is. In fact, it's, it's one of the most prominent themes in the whole Bible. Listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and others utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says this in John 16, verse 33, this beautiful chapter on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Listen to the ministry of Paul in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and posted it on Facebook and complained about how badly he was being treated. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Listen to verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed, to, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Wow. Listen to what Paul then writes years later in his second letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal listen to the apostle peter in first peter 4 verses 12 through 16 beloved do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
But, and here's this word again, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You see this connection all throughout the New Testament between rejoicing and suffering and glory in us, revealing God's glory? Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Just two more. Philippians 1 verse 29, Paul writing to the church while he's in prison. For it has been granted to you, granted as if it's a gift, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. James 1, verses 2 through 4, the final one here. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we just read, how it produces endurance? And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, these these passages almost preach the sermon themselves, right? Suffering serves us. It serves God's people. Let me end with this, four brief reflections on how suffering serves the life of a Christian, how, how suffering works in our, in our lives. The first thing that I want us to just envelop all of this under is that, let's remember that implicit in all of this is that God is sovereign over our suffering. God is sovereign over our suffering. Let me skip ahead in Romans to Romans chapter 8 and, and show you this. We, we spent some time last week in Romans chapter 8, and I want us to think about it again and, and draw something else out of a text that we read last week when we were considering our future state of glorification. But look at, look at the clear implications of what Paul is saying about suffering in the life of a Christian, really in, in the whole world. In Romans 8 verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation, and that's that's we're part of creation, right? That's everything. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And I think that word, that phrase, revealing of the sons of God, means the final and full completion of our sanctification, which is our glorification, which if we read to the end of Romans 8 like we did last week, we would realize that it's, it's, it's spoken of in past tense. In other words, it's already happened, but we're in the process of it becoming. So we are, this is the life, this is the state of the Christian. We are becoming who we already are in Christ. That, that's... That's really encouraging. Verse 20. For creation, th- this, is, this is incredible. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So, so let's stare there at something that's really important for us to see there. It says in verse 20 that creation was subjected. Okay, so you guys know that um, I have these strange grammatical hang-ups because my mother was an English teacher. In fact, she was my English teacher my freshman year of high school. There was just one high school in one town, and she was the only teacher for freshmen, and I had to take her, and it was, it was a brutal year. I got an A, but it was a brutal year. <laughs> and um, I spent my life being corrected grammatically. And so I, I just have this kind of nervous tick every time when I look at things like this. And see in verse 20 that it says that the creation was subjected. 
So there's, there's an object that's acting on creation, doing the subjecting. Do you see that? And so then the consideration is, is who is subjecting creation? Who's behind this all actually bringing about the subjection to futility? Well, I think we have three options. It's either Satan, our enemy, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. It's either us or it's, it's, it's God. Well, let's look at the first option. It can't be, it can't be Satan because notice the, the end purposes of this subjection. The, whoever's doing the subjecting has the purpose of doing this subjecting to bring about, in verse 21, the freedom from corruption. So if the devil's doing anything, he's not wanting us to be freed from corruption. He's wanting to send us into corruption. So that rules out that. Well, it certainly can't be us. The, the, the subjecting is happening to us, and we don't have the wisdom to even come in out of the rain, let alone orchestrate events in our life to bring about some good purposes, right? So, I mean, let's just t- take that off the table. So the only possibility here, and this may blow up some of our, our paradigms about God's relationship with evil in the fall, but behind it all is a sovereign God who's doing the subjecting. Do you see that? Now, there's lots of questions I have. Don't act like I'm just some mean pastor preaching some theology. I got the same questions you do, right? This blows up my little pea brain. It, 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 what, God, what, what are your purposes in even allowing the fall? What are you doing in that? And we're going to get to some of that when we get to Romans 9 maybe sometime next year. I don't know. But the point is, is that we have this picture of God biblically, is that he is behind it all, ordaining, permitting, allowing, whatever verb you want to use, it's not surprising him. God's not reacting to anything, and not only is he not reacting to anything, he is using it, bending it, manipulating, orchestrating, superintending it for the ultimate good of the freedom of the children of God. So let's, let's just go into this realizing that God is sovereign over suffering. I spent some time before I think I developed a good grasp of theology in a stream of the church that um, put a lot of power in like confession. And I don't mean confessions of faith. I mean like what you say. And I think those Christians were well-meaning and well-intended, but I think they'd been poorly taught biblically. And I would hear some things sometimes in that stream of the church that I was in that I'm very thankful for. Uh, There's many things that I appreciate during those years when I was in that stream of the church. But they would say things like, when something would happen or maybe something might have happened to them, they would say something like, well, I don't receive, I choose not to receive that. Whatever it was. And, you know, maybe they're, like, their nose is running and they're coughing up a lung. And somebody says, hey, you might have the flu. And I don't receive that. Well, you got the flu. Get away from me. You know. <laughs> and I, I think that if we understand this biblically, we see that, like, God has purposes in everything that happens to us. I won't take the time to read it, but at the beginning of John chapter 9, there's this beautiful story about this man who was born blind. And he comes to Jesus, and some of his friends come, and some of the teachers of Israel at the time come to Jesus, and they say, what did this man do, or what did his parents do that he is born blind? See, they're seeing a kind of direct cause and effect relationship between this man's blindness and maybe his sin. And certainly that may be the case at times, right? There is a cause and effect relationship between our stupidity and the consequences that we face. But in this particular scene, Jesus is teaching a lesson, and he says, no, 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 no. This man wasn't born blind because he sinned or his parents sinned. He was born blind that the work of God might be displayed in him. And then Jesus healed him. In fact, he spit on some mud, rubbed it on his eyes, and that's another story for another time. But the point is, is that at least in this man's life, God, in his kindness and sovereignty, allowed him to endure. In fact, sent him, made him blind to bring about a greater good in his life. 
You just need to have that category theologically. That's all I'm saying. God is sovereign over all suffering. And then secondly, God has designed it. He's designed good for us in our suffering. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, specifically in the life of Paul, the one who wrote Romans and 2 Corinthians, and he gives us a personal example. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, and this is, this is so, so, so rich and so important for us to see because we see evil at work, we see our enemy at work in this passage, and we see God at work at the same time, overriding, using the enemy. This is Paul. I'm sure it's familiar to many of you, at least the, the, the notion of Paul having this thorn in the flesh. So at the beginning of chapter 12 in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about how he had these revelations from God and that he was really you know, receiving all of this from God and realizing that that might produce in him a kind of arrogance. Listen to what he says in verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, meaning the things that God was showing him, a thorn was given me in the flesh. What that is, we're not exactly sure, but it it certainly plagued Paul. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So do you see what's going on here? Verse 7, there is God who's over it all, who has this good purpose to keep Paul from being conceited, is going to send him some suffering, and the way he does it is he uses Satan as a pawn to accomplish his sovereign end in Paul's life. Oh, come on. One person's like, all y'all should break out in, like, we should, yeah. If you had a tambourine, this would be the time to shake it. That's all, that's all I'm saying. That's not, a, that's not a license for you to get crazy on me next week. I'm just saying. Do, do, come on now. Look, when I was a kid, I, have, I, I, I was a, built like a little twig. I was a skinny little kid. And I had this older brother, my only brother, Todd, who I know I, 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 I kid about him a lot, but he actually... The Lord used him to bring me to faith later in life, so he kind of redeems it all. But man, he used to punk me when we were kids. And he was three years older than me, and he was built like a fire hydrant. And we used to play this boxing thing where he would wrap up in a blanket, and I would put on these boxing gloves, and I would just go. He would just let me hit him. I couldn't hit him above the neck or below the belt, but I could just wail on him. I mean, in my little, you know, nine, ten-year-old sort of way. And he would just sort of laugh at me. And when he'd had enough of me just hitting his shoulders and his arms and his chest and his stomach, he would shed the blanket, jump on top of me, throw me down on the ground, and use my hands to hit myself in the face. (laughs) I have memories of this. Because the insides of the boxing gloves, you know, they got some of those little laces, and I would, yeah, I would scrape the side of my face with the inside of the boxing gloves. It's like my older brother, because he was so much stronger than me, was actually using the evil that I intended for him against me. And that's what's going on in the life of Paul and in the life of every Christian who God guarantees that he will glorify you and he will use Satan, evil itself, as his pawn to serve his sovereign purposes in the life of his people. The third thing that I think we should reflect on is that God intends for us to endure suffering in community. Suffering is not 
an individual sport. Suffering is not an individual sport. In fact, when we suffer together in community, and when we let one another know that we're suffering so that we might pray for and encourage one another, we actually help one another obey Jesus. Where do I get that from? I get that from Galatians chapter 6 and verse 2. This is what Paul says. He says, bear one another's burdens. And that's B-E-A-R. In other words, bear it, not B-A-R-E, like tell everybody about it, right? Just so we know. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So what I take Paul to be saying there clearly is that if we as a church family, if you as a Christian are not connected to other believers that can help you bear and that then at times you can bear it there, then we are not fully obeying what it means to live up to Christ's likeness, the law of Christ that works in his people. So to, let me take it one step further, to, to not share things with other believers around you, to not be vulnerable, to not open up, to try and do life privately is not just disobedience, it's a kind of spiritual pride that hinders the church from being all that it's intended to be for believers to edify them and as an example to an onlooking world. God intends for the church to be a kind of spiritual hospital for people that are enduring all sorts of suffering, to be a kind of countercultural witness. Listen to First Corinthians. This verse, I read this this week, and it just, it just captured me afresh. I remember thinking about it deeply when we went through First Thessalonians, and it grabbed me again this week, and it's been on my mind. First Thessalonians 5, verse 14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And two things occurred to me. One is that all of us will at various times in our life, or even within one week, be simultaneously on both sides of that aisle. We will be the idle and the faint-hearted and the weak that need all of this, and we will be the ones that need to admonish, encourage, and help the weak and be patient with them all. All of us. And to the other thing that occurred to me is that the context in which we discover these things in one another's life, one another's life is life in the local church. I mean, I thought, like, what, do we just kind of walk around town, you know, wherever we are, and say, uh, you, you look a little idle, just to people that we see. Are you feeling faint-hearted today? I mean, no, I mean, th- that might be, it might be things to do as a, a kind of, you know, witness or something, but, but clearly the context is life together in a local church, Listen to this, one final thought on this, that, about how God intends for us to endure suffering in community. Listen to what Paul says as he's in a prison cell in Rome, writing to the church in Philippi. He says in Philippians 1, verse 12 through 14, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And what has happened to Paul is that he was thrown in prison for preaching the gospel. And Paul, in verse 12, is getting excited as he considers the purposes of God behind that. He's excited. He's like, man, get this. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he's saying, God's put me in front of unbelievers because of my suffering so I get to witness to these Roman guards. Isn't that awesome? Verse 14, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
So as we endure suffering together, it puts steel in one another's spine because as we see that brother or sister going through that thing, we are emboldened. And, 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 and speaking, hearkening back to this conversation that I had with a believer in this church recently who has undergone a very difficult trial as they were getting up from my couch and as they just sort of said that thing uh, offhand, that I, I'm glad for this thing. Although I never would have asked for it, I'm glad for it because I can see God's good fruit in my life through it. I, as I was sitting there, was strangely emboldened in my faith as I looked at this person endure tremendous suffering. It stirred in me more of a longing to trust in Christ in my suffering. And then finally, number four, final reflection on suffering in the Christian is that suffering uniquely commends the gospel. I think suffering uniquely commends the gospel, unlike maybe temporary blessing does. And God does both. He blesses his people and he brings suffering, right? But let's think about this just sort of conceptually here for a moment. When God blesses a person or, say, a church, that's a wonderful thing, and we should reflect all glory to God, right? And maybe people around them are saying, wow, God's been good to that person, God's been good to that church. But there's something kind of very earthly about all of us that when we see something, God blessing a person or a church or something seems to be kind of happening positively, spiritually in some place through some blessing, there's just this sense in us, it's almost sort of kind of subconscious, is that we then want to pursue God, and certainly God uses it that way, but, but part of us is sort of, we have to work through this motivation, motivation because we kind of want that thing too, that blessing, right? We're very, we're very prone to want to imitate that person or be part of that thing because we want that thing too. But suffering works in the opposite direction. When God brings suffering in the life of a Christian or in the life of a community of people, a local church, and as they endure it and rejoice in it, and it produces in them hope and a Christwardness, it actually serves to lift the onlooking world's view away from any temporary thing that God may be giving them, and it causes them to look up to Christ. Because why would this person be rejoicing in that? The only reason that they would be rejoicing in that is because Jesus in this person's life or in this community's life truly is a surpassing treasure. Do you see that? And it causes the world around us to look beyond temporary benefits that God may give in the Christian life, and certainly he does, it causes us to look beyond that, beyond this life, to a God who is worth enduring in this present age. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2, and, and I'll, I'll end with, with this. 1 Peter 2, verse 19. This is so fortifying. 1 Peter 2, verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what cre credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So he's saying that as you endure suffering... Jesus has gone before you and he suffered. How can a servant be any greater than his master? How can we expect anything less? And we're not suffering for our sins. We're just suffering as a way of reflecting and pointing a world to Christ who suffered for all that will trust in him. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you see what's going on in Peter's mind as he writes this, I think, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Is he's, he's trying to embolden his readers, how they are to endure suffering. And as he considers their suffering, it immediately causes his mind to think about Jesus' suffering. And it's not that we add anything to Jesus' work on the cross. That's final. That's complete. Only Jesus can, through his suffering, atone for the sins of all those that would trust in him. But as we hope in something beyond this world, as we look to Christ, as we give glory to Christ, as we even rejoice in Christ in our sufferings, we proclaim something to this world that there's something better than this world and it is trusting in Christ because the gospel's true and there's coming a day when he will finally fully make his people right and we will go safely home. Friends, that, that's, that's an aroma. That's a scent that this world is dying to smell. They just don't know it. And suffering is positioned uniquely to do just that. All right, it's been a few weeks, so we got to end on a quote from Charles Spurgeon. In his little book, All of Grace, which is a compilation of his sermons, he writes this about suffering. From the right hand of God, our Lord Jesus rules all things here below and makes them work together for the salvation of his redeemed. He uses both bitter and sweet things, trials and joys, that he may produce in sinners a better mind toward their God. Be thankful for the providence which has made you poor or sick or sad, for by all this, Jesus works the life of your spirit and turns you to himself. And I love these, these last two lines here. The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts on the black horse of affliction. Jesus uses the whole range of our experience to wean us from earth and woo us to heaven. And he does that by producing in us endurance, which produces in us character, which produces in us hope, that becomes a witness to an onlooking world. Friends, let's help one another re rejoice in our sufferings. Because you've either gone through it recently, you're either in it now, or it's coming. Let's do it together. Lord, <clears throat> take this truth from Paul, I pray, and inspired by your Holy Spirit, this word from heaven, from the scriptures, and form Christ in your people. We live in a broken world. We will all face tribulation, but Jesus has overcome this world. Through many tribulations, you inspired Luke to write in Acts, we must enter the kingdom of God. Help us, Lord, to be people that suffer well for the glory of God, pointing beyond ourselves to the one who is worth it all and has promised to bring us safely home. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.